And much of what was read this morning uh, is found in all four Gospels. They all record this event. It was one of the turning points, uh, the beginning of the major turning point of history. And this was based primarily on prophecies that had been given hundreds of years before. So I'd like us to look this morning at Psalm 118. That's the psalm that we opened up with this morning. And the whole last half of the, of the psalm is what is taking place on Palm Sunday. But this was written over 450 years before this took place. And it's amazing how God, um, knowing what He was going to do and when He was going to do it, foretold these things so that when these things took place, people would begin to understand what he was doing, what it meant, what the significance of what was taking place uh, meant. The people who were actually living it at the time of Jesus didn't have a clue. Now these were God's people. These were Hebrew people. They knew the scriptures. They knew this scripture in Psalm 118. But when it, the events were actually taking place, they didn't realize that they were taking part in the fulfillment of these things that had been prophesied so many hundreds of years before. I wonder sometimes when God is working in our midst, if He is doing such a tremendous, uh, powerful demonstration of His love and faithfulness, and we just miss it because it's just the things that are taking place around us. And surely that's for other people or for super spiritual people. It's not for people like us. And yet it was, and it is, and God continues to do that. Psalm 118 was actually written at the time that they were rebuilding the temple after they had come back from captivity. They were still in the excitement of what had taken place. They had actually been allowed to go back home. Their deepest longings of their heart to return to their homeland had been miraculously granted by God. And God was watching over them, and it was hard. Um, it was not easy for those people. They had to start all over again. It's like um, cleaning up after a natural disaster. You know, everything is destroyed, and everything is all just, it's a mess. And before you can even start rebuilding, you've got to clear everything away and sift through what you can use, and most of it's worthless anymore. You've got to haul all that off. They had all of that to do. And yet, they're so excited, so grateful that God has allowed them to come back and He has not forsaken them. He has chosen them, continually choosing them and empowering them and enabling them. And so they're rejoicing here in Psalm 118 because they're laying the foundation and building this new temple of God. I think it's significant that these are the same verses that come into play when Jesus walk, drives, uh, rides into Jerusalem on the donkey. Because what Jesus is doing is through his death and resurrection, he is laying a foundation for a new temple of God. That temple is you. That temple is me. We are the temple of the living God. Foundation laid in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's why this becomes appropriate. This is why the gospel writers took this and make it an application in the life of Jesus. Jesus is building a new temple where he lives within 
the hearts of each individual, and together collectively, we are the body of Christ, the temple of the living God. So Psalm 118 starts off, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. It's an enduring love that goes through destruction and death and suffering and sorrow and grief and loss. His love endures through all of that and resurrects it, enabling them to pick up and go on and infuses life into hopeless situations. So this is why the psalmist can write this psalm. His love endures forever. In my anguish, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. That's a miracle. That's what a miracle is. God listens to people like us, and he hears our cry, and he answers us when we call on him. So later on, I'm going to pick up reading here in verse 18. The people were in captivity because of their sin, because of their pride, their arrogance, their refusal to repent, because of their oppression of each other. For the people of God um, turned against one another. And so God called them to come back to Him, and they turned a deaf ear to God. And so they were left with the, you reject the mercy and grace of God, all that's left is judgment. That's all that's left. If you reject the mercy and grace of God, then you're going to live out the judgment, which they did. And so he says in verse 18, The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gate of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give thanks to you for you answered me. You have become my salvation. So here are these people in captivity, in bondage, because of their sin, as a judgment from God. So how can this guy say, open the gate of righteousness for me and I will enter in? How can he say that? Why are you doing over, what are you in Babylon for? Well, we sin. We refuse to repent. We rejected God. We turned our back on Him. Maybe God's turned His back on us. But He says, no. Open for me the gate for the righteous people to come in. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. And here's the reason that this guy can go in. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. He is the gate. And that's what Jesus said in, in John 10. I am the gate said it twice. By me, through me, people can come in and out. I am the gate. I'm the door. The way of access to God. The way of forgiveness. The way of cleansing. The way of healing. The way of wholeness. The way of hope. Jesus is that gate. And so the psalmist understands that. Open for me the gate of righteousness because God has become my salvation. And that's why I want to go in, so I can give thanks and praise and worship to Him out of gratitude for what He's done for me. He hasn't rejected me. And so this verse itself, verse 21, I will give you thanks for you answered me. 
you have become my salvation. That's taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 15, verse 2. They've been led out of Egypt, and they get to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is coming, and it's a powerful army, and they've got these chariots. That's the, the old, old Testament version of a tank. There's a whole bunch of them, and they're coming, and they're caught. Uh, there's no place to go. They're hemmed in because they're on a small peninsula, and they're on the peninsula, and the only way out by land is tons of thundering chariots with these big things on their wheels and archers and all the rest, you know. And they can't go forward because it's all water. And they got little children and cattle and everything, you know, they're, they're finished. God opens up the sea, sends them through, uh, puts a barrier between them and their enemies. When the people of Israel are, are on the other side, chariots rush in through there, and God sends the flood uh, crashing back down upon them, and they die. And so they're giving this praise and thanks to God. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. And the enemy that would have chased us and pursued us and overcome us is gone. It's dead, finished. You don't have to go through the desert looking over your shoulder, afraid that the Egyptians are going to catch you. And when God forgives us of our sin, we don't have to keep looking over our shoulder. Maybe my past is going to catch up with me. Maybe this thing that has had me in bondage all my life is going to find me again and keep me in bondage. We don't have to look over our shoulder anymore because through the death of Jesus Christ, it's been killed, dead. That's what dying means, finished. And so it was a complete deliverance. Also in Isaiah, he picks up this as well. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. And he's talking about God's deliverance and salvation as well. And Jesus picks up on this also in John chapter 4. So in Isaiah chapter 12, it's a song of praise. And he says, Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So in John chapter 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well. She has a horrible past. Uh, married and divorced, married and divorced, living with people that she's not married to. Um, she's a social outcast. She's got this great weight of guilt and shame. And so she goes out in the heat of the day when nobody else is around because she's not welcome. And she knows she's not welcome in the village. Everybody knows this woman. And Jesus meets her there. And she's looking at the well and he says, give me a drink. And that's not done. In those days, men didn't talk to women, especially strange men talking to strange women. It's not done. And now he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. It's not done. But Jesus breaks all the social barriers to reach the person that's lost and hungry and searching for a way out. All those other things don't make any difference. Opinion, uh, appearances, it doesn't make any difference. He goes to the hungry heart, wherever it is, and he finds him. And he offers this woman hope. And he says, if you knew who it was was talking to you, 
You'd ask him and he would give you living water and you wouldn't have to come here all the time. So she's talking about a well that you got to throw the bucket in, let it fill up, crank the thing back up, and however much you need, you've got to keep doing it. If you've got cattle, then you're going to be doing it a lot. If you've got a lot of cattle, you're going to be doing it a whole lot. <laughs> you've got a big family, lots of water. And every speck of water you use, you've got to haul it up and haul it over there every single day to cook, to wash, to clean, whatever you're going to use it for. It's a lot of work. We've been in cultures like that. It's a lot of work. So Jesus is offering her springs of living water. He says, it's better than a well. This is an artesian well that bubbles up. All you got to do is you don't have to drop the wet bucket in there. And you don't have to do all that. It's bubbling up. It's coming up to meet you. With joy, you will draw waters out of the well of salvation. A well of life springing up from within you to give you meaning and purpose. Wholeness of life. The wells of salvation. And that's what the psalmist is talking about. You have become my salvation. Then he makes a strange statement here. Now they're building the temple and they're starting from scratch because when the Babylonians left, not one stone was left on top of another. So they're having to start all over again. And he makes this strange statement. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. So you're looking here trying to get your stone that you're building with. You want the strongest, the best. Um, you know, you're building here for permanence. So you're going to look for the strongest, the stoutest. And they come to this stone and they say, that's no good. Can't use that one. We reject it. But it's the strongest. It's the best. But it doesn't look right. We don't, we don't want that stone. Uh, Y'all familiar with the, uh, Michelangelo? Um, this guy, was, he was a renaissance man. He was a painter. Um, he was a poet. He was one of the first uh, what, poet laureate of Italy. Um, he wrote a lot of sonnets and things like that. He was a sculptor. Um, all these statues made out of granite, uh, marble, all that kind of stuff. And um, you're, probably one of the most famous things that he did was this huge, huge statue of David. You all know what I'm talking about, right? guy. And uh, there he is. Well, the story is that he went to the quarry to find this stone big enough and all that. And there was this huge stone laying there. And um, the people working at the quarry had set that one aside, discarded it. They threw it away because they said it's too flawed. It's not, it's not good for anything. Let's throw it away. Uh, it's got faults in its structures. It's no good. Throw it away. Michelangelo came. And he looks around and he said, I want that one. I said, that's, that's the rubbish heap. That's that, that's, we threw that in the dump because it's no good. I'll take it. Christ is right anyway, right? <laughs> and he took it and out of that stone, which was rejected by everybody else, he made this incredible figure of David. And people go from all around the world to see it it's in pictures and magazines and on TV. I mean, we're all familiar with that. Uh, Michelangelo looked at that stone and he saw something nobody else saw. 
And God is saying, this stone, which the builders themselves rejected, the ones who are supposed to know, the ones in charge of selecting the best, have rejected this one. We do that with people too, don't we? Well, um, this one looks nice, this one doesn't look so nice. Or this one can do all of this stuff, this one can't do that kind of stuff. So we reject those. Uh, God doesn't. God sees them as the pearl of great price. He sees them as the treasure hidden in a field. And he gives everything for them. That's a situation, that's a person who's hopeless. He'll never change. She won't ever change. God says there's something different there. And something of value. Jesus sought out that woman. And he said, I'm building a new temple. I want you to be part of it. Do you know who I am? Yeah, I know who you are. I know you better than yourself. I know everything you've done. All the sins, all the failures, all the moral lapses, I've known it all. And I want you as part of my temple. That gives me hope. Gives me hope. Peter's going to talk about this later on in Acts chapter 4. All the Sadducees and all the, the priests and all that same group that crucified Jesus. Some miracles were being done in the name of Jesus and they were filled with jealousy. And so they arrest the disciples and put them in jail. Uh, next morning, jail is empty. They all were out preaching the word of God again. And so they went to the jail to get them, and they're not there. Where are all those guys? We put them in jail last night. Well, they're out here preaching again. What do you mean? <laughs> we just put them in there for doing that. Go get them again. So they went and got them again. And so they brought them and. They said to them in Acts 4, verse 28, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And so what Peter says, I got the wrong chapter, chapter 4, <laughs> it is, verses 8 through 12. It's the same group, and they're in... They're being persecuted again. In verse 8, they're asking him, um, they got it before the Sanhedrin again, same group. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, this is the builders, right? If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, this is the man who was lame from birth, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. So he's letting us know who the builders are. Salvation is found in no one else for there is no, one under, no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's a pretty strong statement. You are the builders of Israel. 
you are the architects of this thing and you rejected him but God made him the cornerstone and what that means is there's no other name apart from the name of Jesus and he's the only one that can bring salvation this is the stone that was rejected by men it applied in Psalm 118 to Israel Israel was looked on as a discarded nation uh, rejected by God because they had been defeated and destroyed gone away into captivity finished done with and now here they are coming back and God continues to choose them and continues to tell them I'm going to make my dwelling place here and so this stone of Israel had been rejected and God continued to choose them anyway and he built up the people of God and it was through those people it was this temple that's being built in Psalm 118 with additions by Herod that's going to be the temple that Jesus rides into on Palm Sunday so this is the capstone now the writer of Psalm 118 says the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes the stone you rejected is not rejected by God chosen by him and he has made it the most important stone in the whole building and he says God has done this this is not by actions of men this is a thing that God has done and so they're glorifying and praising God they see the hand of God active in here and so they say the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes it's a word that means wonderful wonderfully done it's something that's strange it's something that's not well understood we don't understand what's going on or why it's working this way but we can say this we can see God's hand at work and when God gets a hold of some of our hearts and lives people say there's changes in this person's life we don't understand it it's kinda of weird we don't know what's going on but we can see the difference and if you get to if you hang around and ask the right questions you're gonna find out it's the hand of God it's the hand of God that's making the changes in the person's life and bringing glory to him so it's a cause of surprise a cause of wonder and amazement and God is the one who's done that and they understand it so he says this is the day the Lord has made let us rejoice and be glad in it the day that the Lord has made that we're going to rejoice and be glad in Psalm 118 is the day of God's deliverance it's the day of God becoming our salvation it's the day that the rejected stone becomes the capstone that's the day that we're rejoicing because this is the day of salvation and so that's what we'll be celebrating this week uh, this is Holy Week uh, Jesus will be crucified uh, on a Friday he will rise again on a Sunday and that's the day the Lord has made and everybody knows when that tomb is empty that this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes so that's why we rejoice that's why we're glad in it and so they cry out in Psalm 118 oh Lord save us that's the word Hosanna that's what Hosanna means it's a it's a cry for help help me are you the me 
somebody <laughs> help me. Hosanna. When Peter's sinking, when he's walking on the water and he starts to sink, he cries out, Hosanna. <laughs> and Jesus helped him. He was there. That's the whole reason that Jesus has come. Oh, Lord, save us. And it, it moved from a cry, a plea for help, to an expression of praise. That's prayer, isn't it? Isn't it? Our prayers, we cry out to God, help us. I'm sick, help us. I'm lonely, help us. I'm hurting, help me. Help me. I can't deal with this. I can't bear this burden, help me. And he answers us. Hosanna. And then we say, Hosanna, praise God because he heard my cry. In my anguish, I cried to the Lord and he answered me. He set me free. Free. And so I come to him with joy and gratitude. This is quoted in all four Gospels. Hosanna. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. That's Psalm 118. From the, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what they said when Jesus is riding in on the donkey. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Some of these men and women and children had been at Lazarus' place a week before. And they had seen a tomb open and a man that had been dead four days come walking out. When Jesus prays a very simple, short prayer. It's the power of God. This thing wasn't done in secret. It was a public thing. And because it was a prominent family, many important people from Jerusalem were there. And a week later, one week later, all these crowds are coming in and they said, Man, did you hear what happened last week? You should have been here last week. What happened? This guy was dead. He, we buried him. Four days later, this Jesus guy comes and he tells us to mo roll away the stone. We rolled it away. He says a simple prayer. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And that guy was dead in the ground four days and he comes walking out. We saw it. There's Lazarus over there. So all these people were coming. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the people were saying. Um, Jesus had done many miracles. Many thousands of people had heard him before. And so when all the newcomers in, all the strangers, all the pilgrims coming in from other lands, they're telling them the great news. There's a prophet again among us, a powerful man of God. And this is what he's done. And, you know, see, uh, old Larry over here, old Larry, you know, he was crippled. Now look at him. Look at him. He's walking. Uh, Pete over here, Pete, he was blind. He can see. He's got good eyes. <laughs> And on and on. And so everybody's coming. He's coming into town. We're getting ready for the Passover. Uh, maybe this is the Messiah. Let's all go see. So it's a great deal, man. Everybody's shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as Luke was telling us a minute ago, by the end of the week, some of those, not all, some of them were crying out, crucify him, a little different shout. Now, there were those who this was the desire of their heart. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, we need you. We need you. Now, all of us 
as Luke was saying, or saying one or the other. It's either Hosanna or crucify him. And we can choose what comes out of our mouth. And what comes out of our mouth is based on what's in our heart and where we're living. And that's the important issue. So from the house of the Lord, we bless you. But that's not what Jesus found when he got there, was it? What are you doing? Won't you hear what they're saying? Tell these people to stop. That's blasphemy. Tell them to quit. Tell those kids to be quiet. I'll tell you the truth, Jesus said. If these hold their, their peace, these very stones will cry out to God. Even the dead, dumb stone has more spiritual intelligence than you do. This rock knows who God is. But the religious leaders of Israel didn't have a clue. So Jesus was challenged instead of being blessed. And you remember he goes to the temple. And here's Jesus. Um, and he makes a whip. Can you imagine that? Jesus making a whip. And he takes this whip and he begins driving out the cattle and turning over the tables of money where people were being cheated. Uh, marketplace. All in the name of the Lord, you understand. Keep those cards and letters coming. <laughs> All in the name of the Lord. Caught a five gas for my Learjet. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing that was going on. And Jesus was angry. Now Luke tells us, when he came over the top of the ridge, you got the Kedron Valley and Jerusalem is there. And you can actually see the temple. It's right on the edge. And from that height, you can see a little bit down into the temple court. And Luke tells us, when he got to that point and he looked down, that he began to weep. Jesus weeping. He's coming into Jerusalem. People are greeting him. The greatest uh, acclamation that he got while he was on the earth. They're waving palm branches and throwing their coats on the ground for him to walk on. Hosanna, blessed is he, comes in the name of the Lord. Peace, peace, you know, all that kind of stuff. And here he is weeping. Why is he weeping? He's weeping over the hardness of heart because he knows when he gets to the temple what he's going to find. And when he gets there, as um, Jesus is weeping in Luke chapter 19. This is what he says in verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So I ask you and I ask myself today, if you, if me, even us, knew on this day what would bring you peace, do you know? Today. What will bring you peace today? It's Jesus. He's the one. Hosanna, crucify. If you only knew what would bring you peace. We haven't realized it yet. If we, as God's people, had realized it, we would have peace. If we don't have peace, we haven't realized who it is 
that we've served or what he has done for us. If we knew. The kids have it right. Jesus loves me. This I know. The Bible tells me so. That's all we need to know. That's the deepest theology you will ever come across. Jesus loves me. And if we can once grasp and say, this I know, the peace will be there. And it doesn't matter about the circumstances. They won't change. But the peace will be there. If you, even you, me, me, you talking to me? <laughs> yes, I'm talking to you. If you, even you, had known this day what would bring you peace. It was hidden from their eyes. Is it hidden from yours? Is it hidden from mine? So this is what God is doing in this our day. And it's a glorious thing. So he comes and Psalm 118 continues. And he says, The Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. Psalm 118. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he has made his light shine upon us through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. And he has come to help us understand the love, the grace of God expressed through his Son. So the Lord is God. He made his light shine upon us with bows in hand. So we pick up the palm branches and we join in the parade as they're going down to the altar. With bows in hand, we join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Now the alternative reading is you bind the festal sacrifice with ropes on the altar. When they took Jesus to the cross, they throw these guys down and they, they tie them to the cross so that um, when the nails go in, the body won't fall off. You know, if the bones break and the flesh rips, and they don't want them to fall off. They want them to stay up there and suffer as long as possible, make it as painful and humiliating for as long as they can. And so they tie them um, to the crosses, and then they nail in the nails. That's the altar. That's the sacrifice. That's the perfect sacrifice. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Exalt the Lord. That word means lift him up. Lift him up. Lift him up for the world to see. Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto me. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Crucified, they lifted him up. And God lifted him up on the third day, exalted him. It's the same word. So God, through his son Jesus Christ, is being exalted, lifted up in your life and in mine. It's either on a cross or it's with an empty tomb and victory and peace and resurrection. And so we're living out what those crowds said, exalting God, either crucifying him afresh, because people know we go to church, they know that. So they look at our lives. Is it Hosanna or crucifying? 
Is it lifting him up, exalting him, or nailing him anew and afresh to the cross? And so he sums it up with bows and hands. We give thanks to God. I will exalt you. In John chapter 20, after the resurrection, this was such good news. And even though Jesus had told them and tried to prepare them, the disciples themselves did not understand it. And even after the resurrection day, and Jesus appeared to several of, the, of them and appeared to groups of them, uh, not everybody was present. And those who weren't still doubted. Now, it's amazing to me that over 50 days, Jesus appears to them. But look in Matthew 28. This is just before the ascension. They all gathered together there. They saw him. They were talking with him, but some doubted. What's wrong with these people? And then I stop and I think, what is wrong with me? <laughs> well, Thomas, you know him. Thomas wasn't there with the, with the rest of the group. Um, so a week later, Jesus appears to the group again. This time, Thomas is with them. And Jesus says to him, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. We're wrestling with something that we can't control. Uh, a weight, a burden, a guilt, whatever it is. Something that, that hinders us in our walk with the Lord or keeps us from the Lord. The risen Christ appears to you and me and he says to us, stop doubting and believe. The, the battle is finished. The victory's won. Why do you want to keep fighting a, a, a battle, a war that's over? Stop doubting and believe. Thomas gets the message. And he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. If you're looking at something, it doesn't take a whole lot of faith. If it's not there, and somebody says, it's coming, it's here. Can't see it yet, but it's here. Then it takes faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews tells us. Stop doubting and believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We're people of faith. That's what we are. Stop doubting and believe. Receive the victory that Christ has done for it, has bought for us. And so the psalmist concludes, Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His love endures forever. And it ends as it began. Let's pray. Father, you sure are an amazing God. And we come to you, Lord, confessing our weaknesses, our doubts, and our fears. And we pray, Father, that you would do such a work within us, that we would open our hearts to receive that faith that comes through your word, that word which would create it within our hearts, that word of resurrection and love and forgiveness and healing and wholeness and companionship, and that you would help us, Lord, to put the past behind us. And because of what you've done, we don't have to keep looking over our shoulder. So Lord, we wait before you.
praying that you would help us, bring us to that place that Thomas could recognize what you've done for him. And we pray that that blessing would be upon us today. In Jesus' name, amen.